forever. Dog. Welcome to Public Intellectual. If you enjoy this podcast and would like access to bonus material like extra episodes and a blog, then you can go to patreon.com slash public intellectual. And in exchange for your support, which helps this podcast keep going, um, you get the extra things. Things are nice, we have decided, in our consumerist society. So go to patreon.com slash public intellectual. When we are talking about revolution or change, we can't only focus on the dismantling. We have to talk about the rebuilding. We need alternatives. So if you find something oppressive or immoral, you can't just chuck it out the window. You need to replace it with something better, something less oppressive, more moral. If you want to get rid of traditional religion because it's patriarchal and discriminatory, then you can't just be one of those atheists saying God is dead and we should all just move on. You have to create an alternative that provides for people what traditional religion provided. And if you want marriage to be abolished, you have to create new pathways to hand over the rights that come with marriage. You have to create new forms of caring and domesticity and love to fill in what marriage traditionally provides. And if you want people to stop having babies, because the number of people on the planet is too high and resources are becoming increasingly scarce and unevenly distributed, then you need to recreate the idea of family, of relating to one another and to our future, and to redefine kinship. Because children don't just give us love and meaning, they give us hope and a reason to invest in our future. Adele Clark and Donna Haraway edited the potent little volume Making Kin, Not Population as a way to think through some of these alternatives to babies as a way of preventing environmental collapse and resource stripping. And Donna was kind enough to talk through some of these issues with me for this episode. I wanted to start by talking about the booming silence um, that your talks that sort of became this collaboration were met with. Um, as you and uh, Adele Clark said in her introduction, there was a um, not even, well, would you qualify it as a, as a hostility or just a sort of um, refusal to engage with the, with the issues that you were trying to discuss? Well, I think that's complicated. Um, sometimes it, the booming silence would be expressed as hostility if, if the issue of human numbers uh, got raised. But I think that uh, progressive feminists of many stripes actively avoided uh, thinking and talking and doing politics in terms of the densities and, um, uh, and levels of human numbers for excellent reasons which is to say the ongoing history, not just the past history, of uh, population programs that are at best um, misogynist, often racist. By misogynist, I mean not taking account the kinds, into account the kinds of reproductive freedoms, reproductive justice that women and their partners want to engage, but rather 
um, using modes of contraception that are the least under women's control, long-term methods that appear to be choice but are often coercive, not to mention outright sterilization programs, the ongoing um, tendency of wealthy people to assume that it's poor people's babies that are the problem, um, the whole history of Malthusian eugenics, which is very old and deep. So I think, um, you know, there, there have been and still are excellent reasons for serious um, reproductive justice feminists to be very wary of population um, idioms, population programs, population talk. So I, for many years, I think Adele and I both also walked around uh, talking in terms of the, de- the burden of human numbers on the planet um, for these reasons. But I think both Adele and I, and I also uh, think many others, feel that that's just no longer good enough, that um, there is no way to address the kinds of multi-species reproductive justice issues that confront um, all of us, that can confront earthlings, without also talking about the very complicated problems of um, the fertility, uh, reproduction, uh, birth, distribution of wealth, distribution of babies, uh, the extraordinary necessity to build kin non-biogenetically, uh, to think about making families, making kin um, in all sorts of innovative ways, pretty much everywhere. And that not to talk about um, the question of human numbers was like you know trying to address really serious problems with both arms tied behind your back because you were afraid of the available idioms for talking about it. So I think it, the hostility uh, has been legitimate in the sense that we, um, by we I mean um, reproductive justice feminists, have um, ha- continued to confront real racism and misogyny and the kind of um, geoengineering, techno, hyper-techno-friendly solutions, including in contraception, uh, are no friend to reproductive justice feminists. Um, Also, I think that uh, many um, really caring people, but who don't come from a reproductive justice perspective, and I think of um, the heirs of Paul Ehrlich, here and many other well-meaning people, mostly men, but not all, who really don't engage um, in the politics of, re- of feminist reproductive justice, uh, have claimed the issue, and that we just can't let them have the issue. It's too important for that. Does that get at some of what you were asking? Yeah, and it, and it does seem like so much of contemporary feminism, at least in a sort of non-academic setting um, of the last 20 years, has been very sort of um, pro-natalist. So taken up as a feminist issue are issues like um, um, removing obstacles to reproductive technology, um, subsidizing yeah. the freezing of eggs and, and so on, and, and sort of expanding the choices, the reproductive choices available to women, rather than a conversation about um, uh, why, why we're doing this and if we should, um, which I think is a lot of sort of contemporary feminism of the last couple decades is, is um, going back to this idea of individual choice. 
um, and expanding a woman's options rather than sort of looking at this as a as a issue of justice or obligation. Yeah, and I think the notion, um, the radical notion of freedom has been reduced to the libertarian and um, potentially right-wing notion of choice Mm -hmm. in all sorts of areas, and that freedom is an expansive concept that is also freedom from poverty, freedom from uh, steep hierarchy and social arrangements, freedom from uh, the coercions of gender systems, uh, freedom to, freedom from, freedom for all those expansive notions of freedom that are part of the history of radical politics have been all too uh, successfully reduced to questions of choice and individual choice. And many, many feminists, to be fair, both in and out of the academy, have written uh, very important critical critical histories, critical political uh, analyses of of pronatalism, of... Uh, reproductive technologies that um, that mainly do not serve, um, you know, any kind of sustainable notion of justice or freedom. I think there's been a lot of thinking about that, and necessarily so, as well as affirming the important uh, the importance of access to reproductive health care, which could include uh, reproductive assistance. Um, but it's been to the exclusion of, of a kind of intersectional analysis of that with what Adele and I and our co-authors are trying to do in the Making Kin Not Population book, which says that the questions of density and numbers must be um, a thread within this, not a kind of single causal uh, uh, way of thinking, but a really important thread that we have left out, um, often actively left out, actively excluded from our politics and our, our, um, our organizing, our thinking. One of the, the writers that is sort of referenced at, at a couple points in the book is Shulamith Firestone, um, who's also been kind of like met with, with a booming silence, at least in um, sort of mainstream feminism that pretends like somehow both she and Andrea Dworkin just never existed at all. Um, but how much has she sort of What's her, you know, when sort of rereading the dialectic of sex recently, it, it, it sort of struck me how much of that book feels like prophecy, if nothing else, like, um, and yeah. way ahead of even where we are now. Um, so how has she, is she a writer that has been sort of formative for you? Um, and for me personally. Yeah, or, or in, in the sort of um, framing of this specific book. Um, not for the framing of this book specifically, but that said, certainly Adele and I, and I think all of us, um, had read Shulamith Firestone at some point in our formation. And um, I have recently reread the marvelous introduction that Sarah Franklin did for the reissuing of uh, Dialectics of Sex, Shulamith Firestone's book. I certainly taught that book in the past and particularly taught it in conjunction with Celestine Ware, um, an African-American feminist theorist who is, if anything, more actively forgotten than Shulamith Firestone and from the same period. So I feel, um, partly because I'm going to be 74 next week, that my own personal life um, as a feminist spans many generations of writing and thinking 
and re- and forgetting and then remembering or or doing again otherwise. So I don't think Shulam and Firestone was directly influential in this book. It wasn't someone we talked about or thought about as we were writing. But while it, after it was underway, it was someone that I think both Adele and I revisited. And she talks about it somewhat in her introduction. And I think it's because of Sarah Franklin, who for a long time, uh, she's known for Dolly mixtures for her, um, uh, well, really for her uh, comprehensive feminist anthropological work around kin making, kinship, uh, and the animal agricultural industries in that, um, all kinds of things. Anyway, Sarah is also a friend. Um, and her thinking has influenced me quite a lot. And she's currently involved deeply with a radical progressive feminist um, reconsideration of questions of reproductive freedom and reproductive justice at Cambridge, which I think does take on the question, is beginning to take on the question of human numbers uh, in its complexity. Notice I'm avoiding the word population every time I can. Yeah, yeah. I'll use the term when I have to, because I think it still does good work. But the term population has been so uh, completely formulated as a biopolitical governance and um, productionist term within state-making apparatuses, uh, health industry apparatuses, uh, ways of valuing who is and who is not valuable in a population. It's a valuation term that it's very hard to work against. And it's very caught within Malthusian and neo-Malthusian frameworks. I think Michelle Murphy does the best job of laying out the uh, the dimensions of that. I will and do continue to use the term population because I think it's important. And I think the practices of demography uh, are complex system sciences that need to be taken on uh, in their complexity. And not I think we can't not take them on and not just in the mode of critique. Um, so I will use the term population, but it, um, I prefer to think about questions of what kinds of density, what sorts of numbers, who lives and who dies within that. And it's a multi-species affair. Um, and it's an affair in which the very concept of species is a problem. I think, for example, um, both Kim, well, Kim Talbert, Michelle Murphy, really all of us, talk about re-aggregating relations uh, that are not simply humanist and that relationalities um, for living on a flourishing world, which includes, which cannot be based on human exceptionalism, that that's a feminist idea and that it's probably been most developed within indigenous thinking, within, uh, um, I think, uh, some very serious women of color thinking, although I also think some very serious women of color thinking has been very wary uh, for good and bad reasons of multi-species issues, um, partly because of the animalization of color from the get-go. These things are really complicated by the histories of language and the history of politics. And I think what we're trying to do in this book is open up a conversation that we have truly avoided. Yeah, and it's, as a reader and as somebody who's sort of um, engaged with these issues in my own work, um, it's both refreshing and frustrating to... um, to begin this process of understanding it in this way 
of sort of redefining culturally and personally and, and also on a society level what kinship means, what family means rather than just sort of like outlining, okay, this should be the next policy choice, right? I mean, because yeah, obviously yeah. you can't talk in terms of policy because of um, the, we're in this sort of uh, capitalist patriarchal system and the history of eugenics and the history of, uh, and, and as you say, like contemporary reality of coercion and, and domination and control. But then kinship and trying to deal with influencing culture becomes so much more diffuse and so less tangible. <laughs> See, I think we do need to deal with policy mm -hmm. in very active ways. And I think if we're serious about kin making, um, that includes very strong kinds of policy fights. Uh, for example, um, fights for um, serious kinds of uh, poverty alleviation and um, housing uh, arrangements that aren't dependent on what Kim Talbert would call coercive settler sexuality that aren't just arranged for uh, the white model nuclear family, um, that we, we ought to be talking about housing policy, poverty reduction, questions of integrating um, the many kinds of people who both can give and need care into kin networks that aren't biogenetic, I'm not thinking just of the elderly, but of the many kinds of differently abled people. We need to be thinking about um, living arrangements that are multi-generational and safe. For example, I think a part of the Me Too movement ought to be agitation for housing. Um, for example, in, in relation to universities that are multi-generational, safe, not a bunch of drunk 18, 19, 20-year-olds <laughs> yeah. uh, who prey on each other. Um, and also um, the the hierarchy of the professoriate that preys on younger on younger colleagues, students, and staff all too often. The blame, blame, shame, prey narratives, while important, I think miss often asking the questions of what constitutes ways of living in learning institutions, in towns, in uh, you know, in, in various kinds of worlds, what constitutes living that creates the possibility for taking risks safely, including sexual experimentation? Uh, so I actually, I think policy is really crucial to all of this. Um, and it's just like um, remembering the way that, um, you know, a black, uh, black feminist thinkers have said housing policy is about reproductive, reproductive freedom. Reproductive freedom can't be reduced to the question of what happens in the um, uterus and the ovaries and the penis and the, so forth. That reproductive freedom has everything to do with being able to bring up generations into flourishing, um, into flourishing lives. Those are policy questions. They have to do with redistribution of income. They have to do with restitution uh, not, uh, in uh, to people who have been subject to radical extraction, uh, I think I think multi-species reproductive justice is um, fundamentally, not only but fundamentally, about law and policy as well, and that we ought to be articulating our reproductive justice politics that way. Um, and the you know some some you know there are people who are doing that. And we ought to be making that louder and more specific and more imaginative. 
Yeah, one one text that I keep going back to um, is uh, Dolores Hayden's "What Would a Non Sexist City Be Like?" Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, which is so, and I think this was this was 1974 or around there that this was published. Um, but yeah, like the the issues of just how um, our domestic spaces are lined up reinforces this. Um, these dynamics that seem so immovable and and so not just immovable but like almost natural it's just taken for granted that this is how a family is supposed to be structured and this is how a city is supposed to be structured and and so on yeah that's right and uh the design of a house is a perfectly as dolores hayden knew you know with exquisite care is a really good example of the way compulsory uh, reproductive sexualities are built into, um, are built, uh, and that uh, choices are constrained within built worlds. And we don't build multi-generational, multi, uh, we don't build housing cities, um, urban agriculture, uh, other kinds of agricultural worlds that really take into account what multi-species reproductive justice would look mm-hmm. like. Yeah, and and in that... No, I was just going to say that, that, uh, as you say, like, it's a problem of imagination. Like, we don't, we, there's not even a sort of glimmer of what, of what that would look like in, in our culture at the moment, right? Well, there's plenty of, I think actually there are plenty of glimmers. Uh, My friend Katie King has always said there's more going on than you thought and less than there should be. And I think part of what um, uh, heartens me is the degree to which so many people really are uh, trying out different things. I think that the ways that um, contemporary democratic socialist imaginations are working even now in the heart of Trumplandia give me a certain kind of um, courage, a certain kind of ongoing sense that chicken little is wrong and the sky has not fallen, at least not yet. And that hopelessness uh, is part of our problem and uh, so that I think we need to identify what people are already doing, including ourselves, and add to it. Um, you know, basically make what we want stronger, as opposed to thinking the enemy controls it all, because they don't. Um, and, and for me, I, you know, I'm kind of a monomaniacal, one-line character at times, <laughs> saying, you know, at, you know, in doing all this, uh, we can't never say that there are already more than a seven and a half billion human beings on this planet. And if we're extremely lucky, by which I mean reproductive rates everywhere continue to fall as they are pretty much everywhere except in the most awfully impacted war zones and uh, you know, terribly extracted places, if birth rates uh, continue to fall as they are now, the human population on this planet by the end of this century uh, will be about 11.2 billion people. If they don't continue to fall, it's more like 20 billion. Now, it's true that these are projections and flawed demographic, uh, demographic sciences and very odd kinds of abstractions, but they're not nothing. And I think the system sciences of demography, um, taking account the trouble of flawed data sets, for example, because for a range of reasons, I know something about um, the history of censuses in the Malagasy Republic on Madagascar. And I know that no good census has ever been taken, and the last census was about 1950. 
uh, and yet projections and statements are made about both current and future populations uh, in Madag- on Madagascar. And that's very strange, inadequate. Uh, that's a really weird operation. And Monica Casper, a, a wonderful feminist writer, has made clear how flawed the data sets and practices of demography are. That said, I think we still can't... Um, I think it's really important to pay attention to um, the numbers best they can be and to make them better. Um, Because I think that uh, questions of distribution of wealth, impacts of consumption, and share numbers really matter. Um, And they have to be talked about out loud with all of their imperfections and with a kind of willingness to make mistakes. I think that part of what shuts us up Uh, as actors in the world, is the necessity to be right as opposed to think out loud with each other and let each other make mistakes and cultivate the capacity to forgive each other because we are uh, trying to build, we're trying to build the we uh, that repractices kinship non-biogenetically so that babies are rare and welcome, so that kids have siblings who aren't necessarily biological brothers and sisters, so that people have kin and family and uh, ways of living both individually and collectively that redo kin. It's a ve- I think it's a very radical program. And we're not beginning it. It's been going on coextensive with the history of feminism. But I think we're, uh, the need to remake it now um, in the face of um, really profound uh, natural social uh, ecological and um, you know, human and non-human uh, endangerment and urgency of within which the question of numbers is not a small matter. Um, one of the pieces I really enjoyed was the um, the piece about East Asia um, by Wang and Wu. Yeah, they did a great job, didn't they? Yeah. And- Go ahead and say um, The thing that uh, sort of struck me was that this isn't just about um, uh, babies and, and children, um, but older populations, especially in America. You know, um, the New York Times has been doing this series about sort of um, uh, the homeless population of older Americans who are sort of uh, wandering from uh, temp job to temp job, seasonal job to seasonal job, um, living in these very sort of precarious situations. Um, And totally sort of completely marginalized due to um, age and lack of sort of family support. And so having that be brought into the conversation by this piece, was uh, sort of eye-opening to me because that w- that was just sort of an angle thinking about these issues that I hadn't thought about before. Um, that it's not just about um, the new generations coming up, but reintegrating these populations that have been um, marginalized in these other ways. Yes. Well, I think Yuling and Chiling, uh, based in Taiwan, did an amazing job. Um, both are uh, really... Uh, Yuling uh, was Chiling's graduate student. Chiling edited the East Asia Science Studies Journal for many years. These are key players in science studies in East Asia and really internationally. And they're taking up um, the question of uh, the nation state, such as Taiwan, for that matter, the People's Republic, Japan, 
um, the the so-called low fertility crisis mm. that leads to national uh, pronatalist policies uh, and ongoing anti-immigration policies. By the way, immigration is a big. I think the question of migrants um, is something we need to come to um, out loud, as well as the question of um, of those who are older. The ways that uh, older older populations, especially older women, are regarded as a burden uh, as opposed to ma- you know vital makers of a good life and they uh, both who who need and give care, people who need support and give support uh, and um, in various kinds of kinship arrangements can and should be integrated into different ways of thinking about what constitutes um, a vital population. And it's not just East Asia. Uh, look around at um, the white United States, Paul Ryan, in the midst of anti-immigration politics of um, of the Trump administration and really his own history, too, for that matter, arguing that, quote, we need more babies. He meant more white babies. Yeah, yeah. He meant more middle-class babies, uh, white by courtesy. Uh, and the uh, you know Sweden, the United States, Denmark, France, um, you name it. The so-called low fertility crisis, when birth rates fall and are below so-called replacement rate, um, or um, you know the proportion of young people to older people in a population scares industries and national planners and the like because of a failure of, of policy and imagination about why a low-fertility society can be especially vibrant, um, especially uh, you know, vital and activating uh, its members uh, in, in new kinds of configurations, especially the older people in this case. That I was listening to a story on NPR this morning before I got up. Uh, a 60-year-old woman whose entire working life she spent um, as an employed preschool teacher, therefore not making much money, um, had, was holding it together in retirement in a, uh, a rental of, uh, apartment. The rent had been raised 200% uh, over the last five years, and in February she got breast cancer um, and could no longer uh, bring in the little extra income from second employment to make the rent, and she's now homeless. And her story is is ordinary. As she said, there there are lots of people out there like that, you know, thrown away after an entire working life um, because of a because of a single crisis throwing them over the edge. This is inexcusable, mm-hmm. um, and it's absolutely part of the the questions of making kin, not population. I also um, I work closely with um, some uh, some immigrant communities in Santa Cruz, and I'm acutely aware of the precarious conditions within which immigrants live in this town. Uh, in which immigrants live in this town, um, the uh, and the the importance of taking seriously the needs of um, of immigrant generations, of immigrant children, immigrant elders, the uh, working adults who are working two or three jobs, often illegally and invisibly. Uh, this has got to be part of serious kin making thinking. Um, if you look, I mean, the, the the crisis of international migration, forced migration, from war, uh, ecological collapse, economic immiseration, um, these, uh, the question of the, of the well-being of migrants, 
um, in the in the homes from which they come and to which they move is fundamental to kin making. Uh, and I think we should be we should be uh, proposing why this is about making kin and how it's about making kin. Um, anyway, I've, I'm going on and on. But <laughs> <laughs> so my one of my slogans has been "Make kin, not babies," mm-hmm. and that gets me in deep deep shit uh, because people think the not babies part people came up to me at one place where I was talking about this and said oh well I love everything you said but can't you just say McKinnon and, and forget the not babies part because that's so hard and I said if you think that's harder than making kin you live in la la land making kin is, per- is one of the biggest challenges we face it's extremely hard and controversial mm-hmm. And the not babies part, while in a way it's um, make kin not babies scans, it works as a slogan. The not babies part really means to me that babies need to be rare, precious. Um, You know, they need to be brought into a serious pro-child world, Um, not a pro-life world, but a pro, but a a world that is seriously pro-child, which is true almost nowhere. It's truer some places than others. Um, and that babies need each other, and they don't have to be biological kin, that we need many fewer babies, especially from the richer segments of the world, the richer segments of population and richer areas. We need many fewer babies who have much better pro-child expectations across the economic spectrum. Um, And making, you know, the not babies part is hard and controversial, but no harder and no more controversial than the making kin part. Yeah, the the sort of, it feels like people think, even if we don't live in a pro-child world, well, at least my child will be born into a pro-child family and that will be enough, you know, it's sort of going back to this idea of um, the individual choice. Um, And and to me, that's where sort of Firestone sort of is is the most vital is in her criticism of the biological and the and the nuclear family um, as as being um, this sort of um, um, I hate the word toxic, but I'm going to use it toxic construct. <laughs> no, it is toxic. Yeah. It is toxic. Um, but um, but yeah, in order to think about. Um, and I, and I think, you know, when we're talking about it as being an imaginative um, project as well, as well as the policy one, um, this idea of kin, kinship and, and uh, limited fertility, it's, um, it seems like trying to find any sort of real support outside of uh, the couple, outside of the nuclear family, because our imaginations are so constrained in this way at the moment. It's so difficult. Like, you know, one of my friends is trying to think about having a child outside and she's single. She doesn't, she doesn't want the involvement of a man in it, but then finding any support within her friend group, which does tend to be white, middle-class, urban, um, who all sort of have the expectation that they will end up coupled up, um, is very difficult for her because it, it's also flimsy. Like those relationships are uh, are, are taken to be so um, for granted. And, and I think that's part of the imaginative thing. Like we can't even imagine like, you know, a group of friends raising a child together or it's difficult for us within sort of how society works and our expectations of what raising a child looks like today. 
Well, I think it's probably most difficult for the wealthier, um, whiter, uh, middle up, middle and upper classes. I think, look at Ruha Benjamin and Kim Talbert's papers in this little book. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they remind us very forcefully, um, Ruha concentrating especially on the on questions of, of the importance of the dead, but um, remi- but also reminding us really forcefully about the ways African-Americans in the United States have raised children um, in non-nuclear uh, model families, sometimes not by choice, but that there is a robust responsibility for the children of the community that African-Americans in this country inherit. And Kim is talking about the ways her Dakota family that had, um, you know, she had somehow thought was some, you know, she, like other uh, Native American kids, uh, might have thought of as somehow not not up to the mark, not okay because of its ways of, of taking care of children collectively in an extended nuclear, in, in extended families rather than nuclear families. But coming to understand that, no, that's not deficient, that's actually better. And the problem is poverty, not the problem of this kind of of, um, extended kinship model, Uh, not model, practice, this extended kinship practice. The uh, Tino Spahe that she talks about in her article is a Dakota word, the extended kin world within which children, children are welcomed. I think that white middle class people are really foolishly ignorant Mm -hmm. of the ways other kinds of kin have been and are practiced, um, uh, and th- that these things are not only possible, they exist, and that um, they, you know, v- people like me have a lot to learn. I also know in my own family history, all my eggs are carefully haploid, and now they're fried, <laughs> but I've certainly <laughs> constructed households that are both multi-generational, um, including both children and elders, and non-biogenetic. Uh, it was partly by chance. My first husband was gay, and neither of us quite knew what to do with that. Um, and we knew that we were friends who had no other model for it than marriage at the time, but it devolved very differently. Um, and forming a kind of um, uh, a household that uh, you know, where kinship was formed out of lover relationships, but friendship relationships across gay and straight. But then with my uh, you know, dear friend and colleague, Susan Harding, who adopted a youngster uh, from Guatemala uh, 24 years ago and asked my partner, Rustin, and me to be godparents, uh, formed an extended kin network among the four of us that has endured, that continues to endure. Um, Rustin's mother lived with us when she was an elder. Uh, we actually do practice many kinds of things that we don't, um, uh, we don't foreground as, ah, we do have some ideas about how to do this, mm-hmm. even us white middle class people. Um, and that lots of other people in the world who are not white middle class, um, I'm thinking of some of my uh, students, former students, now are really uh, you know, working in various ways in uh, the University of California, a really interesting guy named Eric Stanley, uh, who taught me about kin formation among um, some of the formerly homeless and street gay guys in San Francisco, mm, yeah. family formation among um, street people and former street people, even in the face of appalling rents and gentrification and the rest of it. The kin making is going on all over the place. 
and it needs to be strengthened. Uh, and much, most of that kin making is not pronatalist. Um, and the, the, we continue to be, you know, the, the pronatalist families, the overglorification of the babies, um, as opposed to really taking care of the babies. I call pronatalism and pro-life um, a kind of uh, baby fetishism that doesn't really, uh, that isn't really committed to taking care of the young um, and producing a world that the young, not on an individual basis, my family can take care of a baby. I can send my family to good schools. We have good relationships, whether they're friendship-based or marriage-based. We can bring a baby into our individual, individually constructed world. I think the issue is we need to be building, of course, individually constructed worlds, but simultaneously communities in which um, other kinds of kin-making flourish. Yeah, we, um, we've had a couple um, conversations on, on previous episodes of this podcast with uh, about the sort of um, uh, kin-making during... Uh, between uh, queer communities during the AIDS crisis and how yeah. unfortunate it is that a lot of that is now disappearing because of um, the the sort of dominant idea of marriage equality, um, how yeah. how that's sort of being split up now into coupledom. Um, so yeah, it, it's, um, and I really appreciated um, what Kim Talbert was talking about, like be the single mother, the sort of demonization of, of that word, and and the right. especially the single young mother, yeah, yeah, as if that's necessarily pathological. Well, it isn't necessarily pathological in a world that's structured to take care of the kids, mm -hmm. yeah, um, including the, the young the young mother. Yeah, her her essay I I really enjoyed. Um. um by the way, I think that the uh, the capturing of radical gay, radical queer politics, which is not dead, but the the substantial capturing of it in the marriage equality um, politics, should be co-thought with the capturing within a consumerist capitalist framework. Watch the corporate capture of the gay pride parades. Mm -hmm. So it's it's marriage equality is a piece of it, but it's. Um, a piece of it that's in, that's integrated strongly in a um, in an overall capitalist corporate structure that has captured queer culture. Um, that I mean, go to a gay pride parade and watch the capture of queer culture, and it's not just marriage equality. Yeah, uh, Cami Chisholm, a filmmaker who now lives in Canada, has been for me the most powerful objector to this. Every time I want to go to a gay pride parade, she reminds me um, of what uh, of what has happened to, to that, too. Uh, so that marriage equality is a huge piece of it, but it's not the only piece. Um, so we're um, nearing, nearing the end, but before we go, um, I kind of wanted to talk about um, your this idea that uh, you've had in your writing of staying with the trouble um, and how now I see, you know, um, all of our conversations in, in politics now are about space, <laughs> which is the, yeah, the opposite yeah. of staying with the trouble. It's just like, oh, we'll just colonize Mars and everything will be fine. Um, yeah, we'll just geoengineer or go off planet. Yeah. yeah, a space force will take care of it or geoengineering on Earth. Yeah, Elon Musk is going to save us all. Um, but um, but yeah, um, 
I was wondering if you could just sort of uh, talk a little bit about this idea of staying with the trouble, what you meant by it. Um, and um, yeah, I guess that's it. <laughs> yeah. Well, staying with the trouble, uh, I like the phrase because it helps me, it helps me collect up a whole lot of things that I, I think we need to think and do at the same time, somehow, intersectionally. But um, it's, a, it's also a place-based way of thinking that, um, and place is not small, but it's necessarily earthly, fleshly, um, materialist, if you will. Um, it, it's a place is um, the, the worlds within which living and dying with justice and equality and flourishing uh, can be made possible. So how to take care of and live in place. That means... Uh, how to actually be engaged with, let's say, the questions of fracking in Monterey County and the questions of rent control in Santa Cruz at the same time as being engaged with the questions of um, uh, heavy profit-making in, immigra- uh, in immigrant detention, including child detention, including actually um, staying with the trouble of... Um, sea level rise and climate climate change as it's affecting Pacific Islanders now. That staying with the trouble is a kind of all of it, all at once, but nobody has to do everything. That our job is making potent connections. Uh, and it's caring about um, real world. It's caring about the earth and earthlings. And it's, of course it engages technologies of many kinds. Um, and it isn't any more than the cyborg, manif- the cyborg manifesto railed against a kind of anti-technology as well as technological determinism. Technologies are ways of engaging uh, thoughtfully and with skill in um, in organizing, you know, worlds that work. And there's nothing um, evil about, um, let's say, a digital system or a, a molecular system. Uh, but it's but it can't be thought of in terms of use and abuse either. It's bigger than that. It's how do the the many connectivities work so as to make lives that are um, you know make living and dying that makes sense. Always a finite and uh, a finite and place based question. So staying with the trouble for me is absolutely in opposition to the space warriors, just as the cyborg manifesto was in opposition to the space warriors. It's not about the space force. It really is about um, peopling the earth in a multi-species way that makes sense. By the way, one of my favorite writers to think with is Kim Stanley Robinson. And I think his recent book, New York 2140, uh, is full of ideas um, for ways of um, of living, what Anna Tsing would call living on a damaged planet. I think with thinkers and writers who are committed to uh, the question of living on a damaged planet uh, without despair and without techno-optimism. Um, so that, you know, the, staying with the trouble is about continuing to recognize that the damage is real and that you, and much of it irreversible. That... Um, but that that's not the same thing as being able to give up and just um, say, well, it's all over anyway, you know, there's just ruination coming. That's not true. And I think making a difference is staying with the trouble. Um, thank you so much again for speaking with me. I really, um, it was an absolute pleasure. <laughs> Well, it's been fun for me, too. And before we go, I really want to emphasize that this little book 
making kin not pay population really is all six of us. You know, Adele Clark, Ruha Benjamin, me, Michelle Murphy, Yuling Huang, Chiling Wu, and Kim Talbear. Not in a, we're not, it's not a collective project, or it, it's not a collaborative project in the, in the sense that we're thinking the same thoughts and writing a single paper. We're writing in, in conflict and collaboration, as Angela Davis would say. We're writing in uh, co-thinking and friction with each other to try to open up a real co- a, a, a giant conversation about making kin, not population. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Dog. Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram, at Forever Dog Team, and liking our page on Facebook.